Hello and welcome to What Could Be Better Than a Home, the podcast of the Milwaukee Community Land Trust. You are listening to our second episode, Volume 1, Chapter 2, What is a Community Land Trust? Community Land Trusts, or CLTs, are everywhere. There are 300 Community Land Trusts in the United States alone, with hundreds more around the world, all devoted to creating affordable housing that stays affordable forever. The idea of the CLT has been around since the 1970s and has proven itself effective in so many different settings. The largest CLT in the world serves Burlington, Vermont and its suburbs. More than 3,000 units of housing are in that CLT. Burlington is a pretty small city, so that adds up to a substantial portion of Burlington's housing stock. A 2016 estimate found that 7.6% of all units of housing in the city of Burlington are in trust. Amazingly, this is only half of the housing units in trust. Champlain Housing Trust also serves Burlington's suburbs and has about as many housing units in trust outside the city limits of Burlington. Did you know that Habitat for Humanity International, that's the umbrella organization of each and every local Habitat for Humanity organization in the entire world, has done advocacy work in support of CLTs? For instance, in a remarkable 2017 report, Habitat for Humanity International examined the problem of shrinking government funding for affordable housing programs. They recommended steps that federal and state governments could take to encourage CLTs and similar ideas in order to address this issue. The authors also identified three dozen local habitats in the United States that had added a CLT component to their homeownership programs. One of these Habitat for Humanity organizations is located in La Crosse. I spoke with Kaya Fox, their executive director, about the long-term partnership they have with the La Crosse Area Community Land Trust. She was kind enough to call in from La Crosse, and we had a wide-ranging conversation on affordable housing issues. Stay tuned. The CLT model was invented to support affordable housing through homeownership. What could be better than a home? Well, if you're a renter having trouble with housing stability, owning a home at a lower cost than renting would be great. Many renters would like to become homeowners. Not only would they benefit from the security and stability of homeownership, but oftentimes, it's actually cheaper to own than to rent. The problem is always the down payment. It's very hard to get even a small mortgage without at least a few thousand dollars for a down payment. So, even if it would be cheaper to be a homeowner, if your rent is too high, you will never be able to save up for a down payment and will never be able to own a home. Habitat for Humanity, CLTs, and many other affordable housing organizations address this problem by subsidizing the purchase of a home. One way or another, a nonprofit organization makes homeownership affordable. This might be done by providing a cash grant for a down payment which allows a low-income household to qualify for a traditional mortgage. Or, the organization might act as a nonprofit lender, providing a subsidized loan without requiring a down payment. However it's done, the end result is a better life for program participants. They lower their monthly housing costs, build wealth in their home as they pay off their mortgage, and gain stable tenure. A family that could not afford homeownership, suddenly, they're homeowners, and their lives are better for it. So far, so good. 
But what happens in a few years' time? Years down the road, the family might need to sell their home. Maybe someone in the family got a job opportunity out of state. To move, they will need to sell their home. But what if the neighborhood has changed and the home can now be sold for an unaffordable price? What if some very wealthy families want to buy the home for a higher price than anyone else can afford? If so, then a home that was once affordable now becomes unaffordable. Imagine that you volunteered your time swinging a hammer to build an affordable home one sweltering Milwaukee summer. You volunteered because you believe that everyone should have an affordable place to live. But would you have volunteered to build this house if you knew that in several years' time, the home would be bought by a very wealthy family and that the home would never again be affordable for low-income families? You might have thought twice about volunteering for an organization if you knew that all your hard work would eventually benefit a wealthy family. Similarly, the home could also be bought by a landlord. Many people became interested in housing issues and donated to affordable housing organizations after reading about abusive landlords in the book Evicted by Matthew Desmond. Imagine that you were one of these people. You were so moved at the end of the book when some of the people at long last find stable housing and are finally able to blossom and flourish. And so you donate to an affordable housing program, which promises to create a stable home for a low-income renter family through homeownership. But would you have donated if you knew that in a few years' time, the home built in part by your donation would be bought up by a for-profit landlord? Much more importantly, what happens to the next generation when they need a place to live? Will there be affordable housing for our children? Or our children's children? A CLT is based on the idea that once the public contributes to build a unit of affordable housing, that housing should always be reserved for the public benefit. And homeowners should get a fair but not excessive return on their investment in their home. Homeowners should be able to build wealth in their home and recover every penny of equity they create by paying off their mortgage. But an excessive return means that affordable housing becomes unaffordable, and that can be a problem in the long term. Here's how it works. In exchange for help becoming a homeowner, the new homeowners agree that if they ever need to move, they can only sell their home to the CLT and only for an affordable price. And the CLT will then only sell the home to another family struggling to afford housing and only for an affordable price. In this way, the CLT home is forever reserved as affordable housing. That home can never become anything other than affordable housing and it is forever reserved for low-income households. Across the country, we are becoming more and more aware of patterns of gentrification and displacement, where low-income households get forced out of their neighborhoods as real estate and rent prices rise. Across the country, CLTs have been the weapon of choice against gentrification and displacement. It's not hard to see why. No matter how a neighborhood changes, CLT housing is always reserved as affordable housing for people in need. It's striking just how ordinary it feels to live in a CLT home. The family is still the owner of their home. They can live there forever, build equity as they pay off their mortgage, and pass the home on to their children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren. The only real difference is what happens if the home is ever sold. At sale, families recover whatever equity they built in their homes, as well as a small but not excessive return on their investment.
CLTs are also great at keeping people in their homes if they ever run into problems. In 2009, at the height of the foreclosure crisis, a shocking one out of every 45 housing units in the country had a foreclosure filing. You did not mishear that. One out of every 45 homes in the U.S. had a foreclosure filing in 2009. Not one out of 45 homes with mortgages, but one out of 45 homes. Yet, that same year, most CLTs had zero foreclosures filed, and overall, just one-half of 1% of CLT homes had a foreclosure filed. The CLT foreclosure rate was so low that it was a full 5.9 times lower than the nationwide prime loan rate, and a whopping 27.8 times lower than the nationwide subprime loan rate. Some affordable housing programs think that their job is done once a family has the keys to their new home. But because CLTs have a long-term interest in the home, they have developed strategies to check in with homeowners and help out if needed. This maximizes homeowners' chances for success. After all, if a homeowner loses a home in foreclosure, the home leaves the CLT portfolio and is no longer reserved for affordable housing. Finally, many CLT homeowners wind up selling their home and using the proceeds to buy a house on the open market. In other words, CLT homes are a tremendous opportunity for low-income families to build wealth. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, many Habitat for Humanity organizations partner with CLTs, and a handful have actually created an internal CLT. And Habitat for Humanity International is supportive of CLTs and similar ideas. That's because without a CLT, an affordable home ownership program like Habitat for Humanity cannot guarantee that the housing they build will always be affordable. The Habitat for Humanity that serves the La Crosse area is an example of a Habitat for Humanity organization with a successful, long-term partnership with a CLT, and I was fortunate to get the chance to speak with their executive director, Kaya Fox. She is a wealth of information on affordable housing issues, and I learned a lot from talking to her. In our interview, we talked about some of the advantages of CLTs, as well as some housing challenges facing people in the La Crosse area. Hello, my name is Kaya Fox. I'm the Executive Director at Habitat for Humanity La Crosse area. Well, thank you so much for calling in. So I wanted to start off, people in the Milwaukee area sometimes assume that Milwaukee is the only place in Wisconsin that has issues of poverty and housing affordability. What would you say to this? I think it's really easy for people to think that the issues that they have in their community are uniquely theirs. And, you know, unfortunately for the affordable housing issue and for advocates of affordable housing, it's a problem everywhere. So our community actually serves some larger cities, including the city of La Crosse in Wisconsin. Um, but we also have a very, very largely rural area that we support as well. And we find that the issue of affordable housing is something that touches each and every community that we work with. Um, so affordable housing issues are an issue that is uh, citywide, uh, village-wide, countywide, statewide, nationwide. It's an issue that is faced by, you know, every municipality we work with and is something that, you know, the boards and the committees are constantly thinking about and talking about in regards to their communities. Yeah, I would have to agree. So I did look up some data and what I found 
Uh, so according to the most recent HUD estimates, the vast majority of Wisconsin's homeless population do not live in Milwaukee. Uh, just a quarter of Wisconsin's homeless live in Milwaukee. So three quarters live in the rest of the state. I also found a pretty dramatic news article about homelessness in La Crosse. Uh, so a resource officer for the La Crosse de Police Department told a reporter, and this is a direct quote, it's tough as far as long-term solutions go. Part of the problem is that we don't have a lot of legitimate safe spaces to direct people without shelter. In other words, saying that there aren't enough resources to address the problem. And this I could not believe when I saw it. Uh, so I checked HUD data on rents in the La Crosse area. So rents have been steadily increasing in recent years. Uh, but for 2016, that's the last year for which data is available, uh, rents mm -hmm. in the La Crosse area increased nearly 14% compared to just one year earlier. And that's true for efficiencies, one-bedroom, two-bedroom, three-bedroom, four-bedroom uh, apartments. Uh, so rents went up 14% in the La Crosse area in just one year, and that is extraordinary. Uh, so, unfortunately, issues of affordable housing don't really know any geographical boundaries, um, at least not in Wisconsin. No, absolutely not. And I think sometimes the issues of what is the affordable housing barrier can differ from uh, region to region and municipality to municipality. So, for example, you know, the city of La Crosse, their unique issue is more there's housing available, but it's unaffordable to families. Uh, some of our rural areas, there might be affordable housing. There's just not enough units available for families who are lower income. And so they're finding themselves having to have massive uh, travel times and spend a lot of money uh, to pay for transportation to get from their work to their housing. And so the issue might be different in how it's uh, perceived in the community, but it's an issue nonetheless. And so I think there's always going to be strategies that communities have to come up with to try and address the issues of affordable housing that's unique to their area. Yeah, that sounds about right to me. Um, uh, yes. And, and as far as the homelessness issue, I think that's also something that's really difficult for people to understand is the level of homelessness that exists in every single community across the state of Wisconsin. Um, working with the supportive housing staff here in the La Crosse area, they do the homelessness count twice a year where they, they literally go out in the dead of night and they find areas where the homeless tend to congregate and they count them. And there's not a county in the state of Wisconsin that does not find homeless individuals on those nights. And so, you know, when communities think, well, it's a, it's a big city problem, the fact that people are sleeping outside or have no place to be, it's it's all across uh, the state of Wisconsin. Um, the school districts also do counts of their students, um, how many kids in the school district are homeless, and every single county has children that do not have a place to rest at the end of the day, and that's not unique to Milwaukee. It's not unique to La Crosse. It's all across the state. Yeah, absolutely. And the measure that they're using for homelessness is somewhat limited. Um, so, you know, in Milwaukee, it, you know, we do have, uh, you know, say three bedroom apartments that have two or three families, you know, families of four or five living in them. Um, mm -hmm. And that's not counted as homelessness. You know, uh, there's other, 
you know, there's other issues like overcrowding um, that aren't counted among, uh, you know, among just a measure of homelessness, which is, you know, people sleeping outside. Uh, so, absolutely. yeah, no matter which way and you look at it, it's a, it's a really big problem. Yep, absolutely. That definition of homelessness is, is sometimes a barrier as well, because, you know, the HUD definition is literally no place to sleep, you know, sleeping out of doors. Um, where, you know, there's a lot of people that couch surf and have no place that is a consistent address that they can have. So that's, you know, one of the barriers, too, as far as understanding what the actual need in our communities are is just that definition that we use. Exactly, exactly. So my next question, I was hoping you could share some of the history of Lacrosse Habitat for Humanity and uh, what you all are working on right now. Oh, absolutely. We have a really, really exciting year ahead of us uh, for 2019. So uh, 2017 was actually our 25th anniversary for Habitat for Humanity lacrosse area. Um, so we've been around and helping this community for over 25 years now. And we actually, because of our anniversary, we kind of took a step back and said, you know, where are we at Habitat and where do we want to be in the next 25 years? And one of the things that we discovered after talking to the community and just looking at the housing needs in our community, and I think, you know, that increasing rent and the increasing issue of affordable housing, you know, here and elsewhere was kind of the impetus for this. And what we found is that, you know, there's such a, a need for affordable housing in our community and that the model that we use at Habitat just really resonates in our community. So we adopted a three-year strategic plan that basically just takes all of the different programs that we have here at Habitat and blows it up. Um, so, for example, we were building uh, about one or two homes per year um, at Habitat, and our goal is to have six homes under production every year. Um, so, you know, tripling the number of homes that we're building. We want to grow our critical home repair program that helps uh, families stay in their homes and stay safe in their homes. Um, this is a, another issue that's coming up as the baby boomer generation um, is getting older and the idea of aging in place becomes a bigger issue. So we wanted to be more responsive to those needs. So we're expanding the number of homes that we're going to help by making repairs so that people can stay in their homes. Um, we're expanding our neighborhood revitalization programs that help not just individual homeowners, but entire neighborhoods and communities by making them better places to live and bringing people together in their communities. Um, we're also expanding our salvage program, which is a program where we go into homes and businesses that are about to be demolished and we take usable materials and then we bring them back and we sell them at our Habitat Restore, which is also a very unique um, solution to raising funds for affordable housing as we sell you know, gently used items here at the ReStore and then use the proceeds from that uh, to fund the programming that we operate at Habitat. So, you know, this next year is just a year of ex great expansion and, you know, being more receptive to the individual and unique needs that we have here in the community. So we are actually putting together some really fun partnerships um, with local municipalities, businesses, nonprofits, uh, you know, municipal organizations. It's just a huge year for really amazing efforts here at Habitat in conjunction with all of the other players in the housing industry to make sure that we're being receptive to some of those issues that you alluded to earlier. Great. Well, congratulations on your anniversary and, you know, we wish you all the best for, for 2019. 
Um, so let's see. So my next question. So some of the homes built by Lacrosse Habitat for Humanity uh, were put into a community land trust. Uh, so how did this come about? It has come from a very, very long relationship that Habitat for Humanity has with our local community action agency, um, Cooley Cap. So we, uh, you know, as housing developers, I think the La Crosse area is just a really wonderful place of collaboration. Um, you know, we're not, we don't feel that it's, you know, competing for resources is necessarily the best way um, to get the job done and, and deal with the missions that we have in front of us. And so we have long, long partnered with Cooley Cap. Uh, they've provided down payment assistance, um, home buyer education classes. For Habitat homeowners, um, basically since uh, for about 25 years, um, we've been in partnership, and so it was just a really easy transition when Cooley Cap created their community land trust that we could use that as an affordable ho- housing option here at Habitat for Humanity. So, actually, our Habitat houses uh, were one of the very first houses that were put into the community land trust. Our board. Um, after a presentation that we received from Cooley Cap, just really understood, you know, the idea and the issue of affordability and community land trust as being an option to keep those homes affordable into perpetuity. Uh, you know, they 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 heard about it, they understood it, and they jumped on board. And so, whenever possible, we put our habitat homes into the Cooley Community Land Trust. Yeah, very cool collaboration you have out there. Mm-hmm, absolutely. And it helps us, too, because, you know, the cost of the land then, so Habitat for Humanity, when we build houses, you know, the the issue constantly is, you know, being able to raise enough funds in order to afford and to build these houses. And so when you can collaborate with another nonprofit organization and put the land into the community land trust, that can help you reduce your costs as well. Sure, Absolutely. So to close, is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know about Lacrosse Habitat for Humanity? Well, I think you know one of the things that when we talk about affordable housing, and I kind of talked about it earlier, is that idea of partnership and working together. Um, you know, when you are in touch and communicating with other affordable housing providers, and I think there's kind of a uh, a line that is drawn as far as the level of affordability. So, you know, we, we run all the way from homelessness to home ownership, which are kind of two ends of a spectrum. Um, but if you are an affordable housing provider to be aware of all of the issues that are faced by your community in regards to affordable housing, so being aware, you know, we build homes for people, we help first-time homeowners, but to n- not be aware of what the homeless situation in your community is means that you don't necessarily get into contact with different resources and possible solutions that working together you can maybe accomplish some goals that you hadn't known that you were able to accomplish. Um, So, you know, for example, we have been working with a community in Spring Grove, which is a very, very rural community. Um, Our first goal is to build an affordable home in that community, which was a thing that the community had uh, identified as a need a couple of years ago. But one of the other questions that we're talking about is that they do have a small homeless population in that community. And they've been talking to Habitat about ways that we could use our model of volunteerism 
and using volunteers to build housing, how could we take that and do something to address some of the homelessness issues they have in that community? So we've run uh, ideas by as far as tiny homes and uh, community centers that we could work together to address some of those needs in that community. So I think it's really important that you don't limit yourself. You know, so we build houses or we just do first-time homebuyer programs and not have discussions with other affordable housing providers on how you can work together. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, one problem I've seen is is when people get federal benefits and their income increases just a little bit and they wind up losing, you know, losing their housing benefit. And that doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, it seems like there, there ought to be a way for... Uh, you know, for nonprofits to work together with people in that situation. Oh, the sky is the limits as far as together what we can do. And, uh, you know, that's one of the things too, you know, if even if it's not a brick and mortar solution that you come up with together, so, you know, building something or putting something together, it's that advocacy piece that I think we can all work together on is educating the public letting people know what the issues are in your community and working as advocates and spreading the word and, and bringing that little piece that you know and that knowledge that you have to the table and letting your community know. Um, and I think that's one of the things employers, when I talk to them in the community, you know, that's one of the things that they say is they've had, you know, employees that have turned down raises, you know, a 50 cent raise puts them outside of receiving benefits. And so that benefit that they get and lose is actually more than that raise is getting them. And so they make a decision that is important for their family and important for their livelihood and their monthly budgets and their ability to maintain their housing. And employers can't understand that. But then when you start doing that advocacy piece and talking to them about why these decisions are being made, they can kind of see where there's issues and maybe help you work towards solutions. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so unless there's anything else, I'd like to thank you once again for calling in, and I, I hope you have a great weekend. Oh, absolutely, Chris. Thank you so much. These were really great questions. That was Kaya Fox, Executive Director of Habitat for Humanity Lacrosse Area. For more information about Habitat for Humanity Lacrosse Area, and to make a donation, you can visit them on the web at habitatlacrosse.org. There's also a link on the webpage for this episode. And you can also find out more about CooleyCap, the organization that runs the lacrosse area CLT, on the web at cooleycap.org. That's C-O-U-L-E-E-C-A-P dot O-R-G. That's almost all for this episode. A few miscellaneous ideas before we close. I put a link in the webpage for this episode to a blog post I wrote about rising home prices. It might seem like a positive development when you are able to sell your home for a higher price than you bought it. But when you run the numbers, it turns out that most people are worse off when housing prices rise. I wanted to explore that idea here, but a podcast is about the worst format for explaining this idea. Check out the webpage for this episode to find that link. Also, a lingering question. Why was the first episode about Norway? 
Well, for a few decades, many owner-occupied homes in Norway had the same conditions as a CLT. They could only be sold for an affordable price. And while I couldn't find an exact number, here's what I did find. In 2000, 1 million Norwegian homes had been built using home loans from Norway's largest public bank, Husbanken. At that time, there were a total of 2 million households in Norway. But there were other public banks offering public mortgages. So, over a million units of housing, or more than half of all units of housing in Norway, were built using public mortgages, which, until the early 1980s, had striking similarities to a CLT. So, was Norway at one point the world's largest CLT? I'll leave that for you to decide. But Norway's national housing policy for the first few decades after World War II bears more than passing resemblance to a CLT. And one final quick announcement. The Milwaukee CLT annual meeting is coming up quick. If you live in Milwaukee, you can vote in the elections for the board of directors. The board of directors makes all the major decisions of Milwaukee CLT and your voice matters. The election will be held in the community room of the Central Branch Library at the corner of 8th and Wisconsin Avenue at 6.30 on February 5th, 2019. After this meeting, you will need to be a member of Milwaukee CLT in order to vote. Membership dues are just $1 per year, but you must live in the city of Milwaukee. However, to vote on February 5th, you only need to live in Milwaukee. There are no dues for this election. Remember, anyone who lives in Milwaukee can vote. You just need to be 18 years or older. What Could Be Better Than a Home is a production of Milwaukee Community Land Trust LTD in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Research was done by me, Chris Kirko. Special thanks once again to Kaya Fox, who generously shared her time and extensive knowledge on affordable housing issues. And special thanks as well to the Eisenberg family in River West. They let me snap a photo of their People's Flag of Milwaukee to use as the podcast cover.